Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Asking for Myself, the podcast where I ask all the questions you're too afraid to. Well, hopefully not for long. I'm also here to get some tips on how I can have better sex in relationships. Who am I? That's one secret I'll never tell. JK, I'll tell you right now. I'm your host, Mia, the founder and CEO of Taboo, a content platform built by moi and a team of experts to empower you to have more fulfilling sex, strong and healthy relationships, and nurtured mental health. Growing up, I struggled with my period. Heck, I still struggle with it now. I used to have the most painful, debilitating, and heavy periods and went back and forth with doctors for years to figure out what was going on. Like many people with a uterus, I haven't always been thrilled with my experience with the gynecologist. And after a traumatizing experience with a speculum, I avoided a follow-up pap smear for years. How can we take control of our health when we don't feel in control as a patient? If you find yourself waiting until the last two minutes of your appointment to ask your doctor a question, this episode is for you. I hope this helps you feel more empowered to seek and find the care you deserve and to level up your vaginal and vulvar health. So without further ado, let's talk taboo. Hello. Thank you both for joining me for this conversation all about vaginal health and how to advocate for yourself as a patient. Do you want to start by just introducing yourselves, who you are and what you do? Sure. I am Dr. Stacy Tanaway. I am a board-certified OBGYN physician in private practice in Jacksonville, Florida. And I am mostly focusing on gynecology right now. I gave up my obstetrics practice a couple years ago. And I joined social media as a result of a huge burnout crisis after a huge health crisis. I quit my job, left with no plan, found another GYN-only part-time job, and started social media to recruit patients. And so that evolved. And I just went along for the ride for it and watched everything kind of naturally evolve and grow organically in a way that I never, ever anticipated. So I'm just kind of along for the ride. And here we are. Very cool. Well, I'm Heather Arabunda. I am a board-certified OBGYN as well. I'm based in New York City. I'm actually working for New York City Health and Hospitals, which is the country's largest public health system, which is super exciting. Basically, I came to social media for the same reason. I didn't necessarily have too much of like the health issues that caused my burnout, but it was like, I mean, medicine sometimes can can be really rough. And what I noticed is that I felt like I provide information and education to my patients one-on-one. And my patients are like, oh my God, I'm so happy someone told me about this. But like, I want everyone to be able to know it because it shouldn't just be me. It shouldn't just be my patient that I see. It should be a universal knowledge-based database. So that's why I came to social media and it's just been exciting. I've been doing it for about a year now. So I'm just happy to see where it goes. Awesome. And thank you both for all the work that you do and educating people. I feel like these are the things we need to be learning in schools and, you know, there's maybe sex ed and there's bio class, but there's not necessarily in-depth knowledge or relevant, relatable knowledge that we learn in school or even from our parents or family in many cases. So just to start and kind of touch on what you already mentioned in terms of what your careers are, what exactly is a gynecologist and what is the difference between OBGYN and 
gynecologist and like, who do you go to for what? Yeah, that's a good question. OBGYN stands for obstetrics and gynecology. All OBGYNs and even specialized GYNs or specialized OBs have first trained in general obstetrics and gynecology. So all of us are generally boarded in obstetrics and gynecology because we've all finished our four-year residency in both. Some people choose to specialize further and go into fellowship trained specialties. And some people like myself who are suffered from burnout (laughs) choose to drop one or the other and just focus on one. And obstetrics is the care of pregnancy and pregnant people. And gynecology is care of the reproductive system, uterus, ovaries, vagina, cervix. So in the non-pregnant person. Yeah, totally agree. (laughs) Totally agree. And it's just such a wonderful field, I feel, because you can do so many different things and take care of people in so many parts of their life cycle, as I like to call it, if having babies or just finding out what those reproductive organs are, it's really exciting. So uh, we do a lot and it's, I think it's cool. That's why I did it. (laughs) It covers everything. It really like we do, we do obviously women's health. We do reproductive health of everyone with those reproductive organs. We do mental health. We do emergency health. We do surgery. We, I mean, I I feel like I'm a psychiatrist half the time and in an internal medicine physician half the time and an emergency physician the other half of the time it doesn't exist. And yeah, we just do a little bit of everything. And that's part of the fun of it. Like it's constantly changing and there's new things and it's just makes it, it keeps it exciting. So it's never boring. Amazing. Well, hats off to you because I, uh, I do not have the, I do not have those skills. So anyway, (laughs) that's why I'm coming to the experts. (laughs) Okay. So also you've kind of also mentioned both of you being on social media. And I just wanted to ask a quick question about what it's like or what your experience has been with distilling information, really like charged and packed topics into short TikTok videos And what do you think are the benefits of social media education and what are some of the limitations? Well, Stacey does such a great job. I'm like, I literally, I'm like fangirling a little bit right now, honestly. Seriously. No, she says that and I'm over here going, I get to talk to Heather today. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, it's just so innovative. And like what I'm really so happy to see with, so many of my colleagues, just like Stacey, is that the creativity, the creativity, the ability to take these topics that many of us sat down in a lecture hall, very boringly learned, and make it into a way that people of all ages, backgrounds, whatever, can find value for and use for and entertainment from. So like, social media, TikTok, all of these things have really opened the door for like nerdy education to be cool again or cool. I don't know if it was ever (laughs) cool before, but cool now. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is, you know, it's such a fun thing to make that information digestible in this fun realm. And I think what social media has proven to, to really both of us, especially on TikTok, is that this information is not only needed, but very much wanted. Like re- these, like these 
our audiences are craving this information, especially our TikTok demographic. They are just soaking this all up and like begging for more uh, because there's, there's so much misinformation out there. So they're constantly tagging both of us in all the videos. You know, Dr. Stacy, Dr. Heather, is this true? Is this true? Debunk this. You do this, you know, or duet this. And it's just, it's incredible. And I think, you know, the biggest benefit for me is not only the obvious is the education and education, like Heather said, you know, educating the masses, you know, a bigger community and getting our messages out in a larger way. But it's also, I I really think beneficial for my local patients too, because now that I have been successful enough to build this up the way that I have, I'm actually am recruiting patients locally. And when my local patients come in to see me, they feel like they already know who I am. And for a gynecologist who is about to get into your most intimate parts in a really intimidating exam room, like that is so key. You can see the difference in comfort level in people when they're like, I found you on social media. And when I sit there and chat with them, like I do on social media, they're like, oh my gosh, I already know this provider. And I already kind of remotely built a trust level with this provider. And I already have this little comfort level. And then she's talked about her personal life. So we have little connections that I, you know, that I relate with there. And so there's just that much more level of comfort and trust in that goes into this hugely intimidating exam room. And it's just been, it's been really incredible to see that evolve and the comfort level of my patients and talking about all of these topics. I had a patient who came to me who specifically said, I found you on, or my so-and-so directed me to you on social media. And I came to you because of your sex positive message because I live a lifestyle that some people would consider alternative. And I don't feel comfortable talking about that with other people. But because of what you've put out there, I I feel comfortable talking to you about what, you know, what I do, what I like and how I live. And that to me was just like, you know, that that's it. That's that's what we're there for is to create a space for people to feel comfortable. And if we can translate that into real life, awesome. Exactly. It's just, it's so powerful to see how it works in exactly like on a macro level and a micro level too. Because another thing that I use my social media for is like, instead of being like, oh, here's these like little handouts, right? Like from wherever you find them. It's like, even if it's not me directing them to like my resources, it's like, I literally... Dr. Stacy, she's on, you know, TikTok, Mama Dr. Jones, you know, all of these people who are putting out really good information. And if we have like 15 minutes, 30 minutes to see a patient, sometimes that's just not enough time for us to like really get into your nitty gritty, teaching you all of the things we need to. And it's like, hey, I know they're now like reliable sources of information that do it in a really awesome way, non-judgmental way, and in a way that people can understand that I can direct my patients to. So it's just, I don't know, it's like, it's so encouraging to see how far we, we're, we're, we're going, how far we've come. And like the future, I think is just limitless in terms of what we can do with social media. 
Oh my God. I don't know how many times I've written down like all the fertility providers on social media because fertility is such a big conversation and you don't have that much time to talk about it. I'm like, all right, here's a list of people to go follow on social media. Go listen to this po- podcast. Go watch this person's YouTube. And I mean, it's it's incredible. I think, yeah, it's it's opened up an entirely new world and given people so much access to this information. And I think the key is what you're saying is it like it humanizes the doctor's it makes this medical information like applicable and real and just fun. And like when you have younger people who are reading this or watching videos and sharing it and all that stuff, it's like, wow, people really do. People have always cared about their health, but I think people haven't always had the options and accessibility to actually like get the information they need. So again, thank you for what you're doing. And also I can guarantee you that I'm fangirling the most because I was really shocked and like so grateful that you both agreed to talk to me today. <laughs> well you told me you're like you're you're like I I talked to Heather Irabunda. I'm like that was the same really? thing. okay sold I was <laughs> like I'm done <laughs> that's the same thing I thought I was like whoa I got, I'm totally gonna do this <laughs> yeah so you basically sold each of us on each other and that was my I don't plan. even think that I was my plan. that was it was perfect because you did yeah, well it was a well. trap situation I'm like all right let's see if I can make this happen okay I'm so happy about it so obviously one of the most common questions people ask is just like is my vagina normal or even if that's not what they're asking that's basically what they're getting at and obviously just with like society and capitalism and sexism we've been convinced that something's wrong with our vaginas that they smell that pubic hair is gross and all these other harmful ideas about our bodies so both of you have talked about this um, and shared videos about you know what you should and shouldn't put in your vagina scented products pads tampons etc so what can you tell people just about overcoming these insecurities and like what you should not put in your vagina and then also what isn't normal? Like when should you go to a doctor or um, maybe maybe you need antibiotics for something? Like when is it not quote unquote normal? Yeah, we've, I mean, we've <laughs> campaigned together on this, like hard. We hard. have. <laughs> we're like, we, I mean, we're part of yeah. the collective of like, <laughs> I feel like there's like a whole squad of us that are like, stop bothering your vaginas. They are speaking to you and they're revolting because we're doing too much. Like the, our society, man, we got to like revamp the whole, the whole thing, all of this purity culture and all of that. It just seeps into everything and gives so many people complexes. I've been a person who had that type of complex prior to being a medical professional because I didn't know any better. My family, my parents didn't talk about what a normal vagina was like. And I was just directed to the bathroom and the soaps that were in there and told, do not come out stinky. (laughs) So I get it. So, but yeah, no, we've campaigned together and it's been hilarious because it's just like, I feel like people are like, wow, you guys feel very strongly about this. And it's like, yeah, I do. Cause I see it all day, (laughs) all day long. Yes, all day. And I feel, you know, we're like broken records in the office. I mean, how many times do we go over vulvar hygiene, just general guidelines in the office? It's multiple times a day. And so the same thing, if we can direct people to, you know, one article that we, you know, that we did together or one, you know, post just that just breaks all that down, it makes it so much easier. But, you know, I say all the time, I've said it for years that, you know, your vagina is an introvert. 
she, you know, it wants to be left alone unless it's for period products or for pleasure. It wants to be left alone because it's going to fix itself nine times out of 10. And if it doesn't, if you really feel like something's off, you know, obviously access is always an issue. But if you have access to any sort of health provider that deals with this gynecologist, you know, obviously preferred, come see us so we can direct you into the appropriate measures rather than all the self-treating that's out there. Because I... I mean, the amount of times that I've been asked on TikTok if, you know, if Betadine was an appropriate thing to douche with, I mean, like, I just, it, it right? Yeah, she's cringing and it just, oh, it hurts my soul because all the, the, the messages, the media, all of society, the messages that we get from all of these products are that you need all of these things. You need all of these things because something is inherently wrong with you. You know, something is is inherently dirty that needs sanitizing, that needs cleansing, that needs, you need to wipe that slate clean and be pure with zero scent, zero odor and zero natural discharge. And it is, it's that purity culture that makes us need to scrub our souls slash vaginas and vulvas clean of all of our sins. And it it's from all angles, all angles. And it just, we are bombard, bombarded with those messages of shame and guilt and dirtiness and that we should be buying and spending lots of money to make our genitals smell like cookies and ice cream. And oh, <laughs> Oh, Lord. hmm. Yeah. And like one big thing I always tell people in my office is like, because people say I have a smell. I'm like, so do I. We all do. What do you mean by smell? Right. Because a lot of times what I've noticed, even colleagues that I've seen of mine, automatically they're hitting patients with antibiotics or antifungals or something like that because they said, oh, my patient says she has a smell. I'm like, or he, you know, or he, whatever. And I'm like, did you ask your patient, is it a bad smell? Because honestly, I've had that conversation before and people say, some people say, yes, it's bad. And then we look at it and we evaluate it. And then some people are like, no, it's not bad. It's just like not what I'm used to or not what I'm expecting or not what I'm told I'm supposed to have. And then most times that smell is actually normal. It's not a foul smell. It's not an infection. It's just normal. Maybe they changed their detergent and like, our genitals are big chemistry experiments. So like you put this and this, you may get a different smell. It may not be bad, but it, you know, it may not be good, but it's not bad. And it's not an infection. It's, there's nothing wrong with you. And so I'm usually combating that too, where it's like, not all smells are bad and we don't need to treat all smells. Like a smell is not something to treat unless it's, Foul smelling, also associated with other symptoms, itching, burning, those types of things. And I think we have to keep that in mind because the amount of antibiotics that are given out is crazy. I was actually talking about this yesterday at work because um, another popular topic I have, which are UTIs, and that's for another day. In New York City, we have so many multi-drug resistant bacteria causing UTIs that like there are patients that I can't even give antibiotics by mouth to anymore, 
to treat their UTIs. They have to come in because it's resistant to every antibiotic you can get by mouth. And it's so many patients sound like that. Like we're like, this is not good at all. Yeah. I And I usually give the, them a little like tester. I say, you know, when you go to the bathroom, do you get like an overwhelming wafting of something that makes you go ill or are you taking your underwear or panty liner and putting it up to your nose and being like, I don't know. Because if you're putting it up to your nose, that's normal. Like if you have to put it up to your nose to smell something, that's normal. If you're getting, if you're just going to the bathroom, you're getting some overwhelming wafting of something that you really think is unpleasant. I will check that out. But if it takes it to come up here to your nose, you're fine. That's exactly. Fine. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's only an issue when I when it's literally against my face. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and don't rub it on your face either. People on TikTok are doing that. Yes, do that. they're doing it. It's like they you are. know. I always say, do everything at your own risk, man. Like. We'll, we'll tell you, like, I'm always like risk benefits. And like, you know what, if you do it, you might be in my office later. And if you're okay with that, then I'm okay with that. But like, but if you're not, if you're really trying to avoid being in a doctor's office, then you really have to rethink some of your life decisions. And that's okay. But that's what I'm saying. You choose, you, you pick your poison. None of us are perfect. We all do things. And hey, you know, you may want to try something out but there's a risk associated with it. And if you're not willing to take the risk, then maybe you shouldn't do it. That's what I always say. I'm like, hey, to each their own. I think it's just their way of uh, keeping in touch with you. (laughs) Are you in the market to buy a new sex toy? Perhaps you're ready to switch it up, or maybe you don't even know where to begin. We're here to answer all your taboo questions, including how do I find the right sex toy? Who better to help us out than our friends at Honey Playbox? Honey Playbox is a pleasure products company run by a group of sex educators, queer meme queens, and toy connoisseurs passionate about bringing inclusive values to the adult industry. Honey Playbox believes that exploration and education are necessary for positive experiences of sexuality and that prioritizing pleasure starts with versatile toys. We asked listeners to write in to us for a personalized sex toy recommendation. So let's get into it. Today we're helping Lydia, who wrote in, I've tried a bullet vibrator, but it felt like it was desensitizing my clit and it made it take longer to owe. Been less excited about vibrators for that reason and more interested in toys that simulate oral. Hi Lydia. Our recommendation for you is Honey Playbox's Irresistible, featuring a comfortable rounded handle and soft silicone tip. The Irresistible offers sucking, pulsating, and throbbing sensations. It gently surrounds erogenous spots without overwhelming sensitive tissue. The sensation is completely different from a vibration effect. It's much more subtle and direct, mimicking patient oral sex. If you're someone who hasn't historically loved vibrators, this could be a great toy to try. It's different, so go ahead and explore a new sensation. Honey Playbox offers unique and affordable toys made from body-safe materials, and their team is always available to find the perfect toy for you. And right now, you can get 25% off your purchase with the coupon code TABU. That's T-A-B-U. Honey Playbox, where sexual wellness meets play. So... Let's see. Oh, okay. So speaking of another thing that's possibly overprescribed, I want to talk a little bit about birth control. So obviously a lot of doctors prescribe birth control for like insert any number of issues that someone will come in with, whether it's just an irregular period or period pain or um, a lot of other things. And I know that for me, that's something that I've, you know, 
dealt with going on birth control, going off of birth control, having side effects with birth control, trying to find the right birth control. So for, you know, very valid reasons, a lot of people have, you know, they're not thrilled about the option of birth control, but at the same time, birth control has been incredible in giving, empowering women and, and also curbing a lot of those symptoms of, you know, PMS and other types of issues. So with that being said, like, how can people go about finding the right birth control? And then with some of the myths about like birth control causing infertility or just some of the also realities of birth control masking symptoms rather than like getting to the root cause. This is all just a loaded question about like, how do we decide on birth control and what are other options that people have? If, is birth control, if they're not like wanting to go on birth control? I, I think, you know what? I think it's all about expectations of how we set up expectations for for whatever treatment it's not even just birth control but whatever treatment and right now birth control of every method is really under fire right now and it's all about expectations nothing that i give you is ever going to be 100% perfect nothing that i give you even over the counter in tylenol is not without some risk of some sort. There is nothing that we do in life that is without some risk. So just like Heather was saying, everything you do is a risk-benefit situation. Getting in your car to drive to work is a risk-benefit choice that some of us have to make. And some of us, you know, we some of us choose to walk across the street. And it's the same thing with birth control is do we need birth control to prevent pregnancy? Do we need some sort of method to do something. And if we do, what are our expectations? What are our goals for treatment? What are our priorities for improvements versus side effects? And what are we looking to achieve? And if we set that stage up of, you know what, it's not going to be perfect. And it might take a couple, a little bit of trial and error for us to figure out together as a team what's going to work best for, for you. But rest assured, we'll get there. We'll find something. And if something doesn't work, we will scratch it and move on to the next thing. I think if when people are kind of pigeonholed into here's a pill, take it and be good, be gone. That That's when we get into problems of not being informed and not understanding what's going on. But if we set the stage of expectations, it goes over much better, yes. much better. Like even talking about fears. I mean, right now everyone is talking about blood clots with COVID and vaccines, and then we're comparing it to birth control and pregnancy. And when I set up the, the I, when I lay out the foundation of the risks at baseline versus birth control pills versus pregnancy versus postpartum, people are like, oh, mm-hmm. you mean it's still like 10 times less risk of a blood clot taking birth control than when I'm postpartum? I'm like, yeah. Yes. So we are preventing an even higher risk state if that's what we want to do. So yes, it is risky. Yes, it is scary. Yes, there are side effects. But we have to take it all in context and within context and expectation. I totally agree because I think that the disservice that some in the medical community has done is that like not truly engaging in an informed consent, right? So like, when we're giving any sort of treatment, even if, even non-surgical treatments, 
We should be informing people what we're doing, why we're doing it, what's going on with you at baseline, right? Like what, you know, what medical problem are we treating, right? What are our thoughts in terms of what other things it could potentially be? What are all the different types of treatments available? And why do I think that this may be better for you or whatnot? I don't think those conversations in that way are happening just from what I've even seen in my patients and even people on social media, you know, will tell you. Even my own personal experience with medicine has shown me that. And so it, it, it breeds this distrust. It breeds the fear. And I think that that's the reason why a lot of times we're like, well, I feel like my symptoms have been masked or like we haven't really treated the problem. Right. And I totally get that feeling because I have felt that same way in my own journey as a patient, you know, before I knew anything about medicine. But the thing about it is that I think it's more so the education piece behind it. Like, were you even told that that was never the intention of what we were giving you? You know what I mean? And sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes there are docs or, you know, medical providers who are like, this is going to treat you. This is going to fix it. Like just yesterday I had a patient bring me a, um, a bottle of pills and like she's being treated for fertility issues. And because of insurance issues, she had to switch to me. And she's like, they told me this is going to fix my fertility. And it was a bottle of metformin. And anybody who knows anything about, and she has regular periods and things like that. And anybody who knows anything about periods, regular periods, metformin, PCOS knows that it's like, uh, you know, like, why did they give it to you and tell you that this was like your magic cure, you know? And that's what, and maybe, I, I'm not sure if that's what the patient was told, but that's what she got out of the interaction. And so that's why I'm always really cautious when I say like, Hey, if it's setting expectations, if you know what's, if you understand what's going on with you, if you understand what the treatment options are and you choose one, I love it when my patients can then recite back to me. Oh yeah. I, I knew this was going to be a side effect. I wasn't sure if it was going to be in me. I have it. I don't like it. I want something different. I'm like, perfect. Glad that we are all on the same page. But the problem I see is a lot of times people are put on a whole bunch of different things, a whole bunch of different birth control methods, and like are never really explained what the side effects are going to be, what are more common side effects, what are less common side effects. And then it just breeds frustration and it breeds um, distrust in our, in our community, in the medical community. Yeah. And I think like, Mia, what you said earlier too, this whole idea of treating symptoms versus getting to the root cause, that's a little bit of a misnomer just in medicine in general. Most things we can't cure, right? Like I cannot cure your asthma, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to control it and we're going to keep your symptoms at bay and we're going to try to prevent this. And if you do have a flare, we're going to treat that flare but I'm never going to cure your asthma. You're always going to be an asthmatic. We are just treating your symptoms and keeping you under control. And that's kind of similar for for most things in medicine and especially in, in GYN too. With PCOS, we're really not looking to cure PCOS. That whole idea of a root cause uh, we're to get there is really not anyone's goal. And if they tell you that's their goal, they don't know what they're talking about. Exactly. 
they just don't. The goal of most of these treatments is to keep the symptoms under control and to keep that state under control. You're not going to cure someone's thyroid or their asthma or their type 1 diabetes. You're not going to cure that. We're controlling and controlling symptoms. And if people understand that concept of, you know what, that's always underlying going to kind of be there. And we can help things from a, you know, a multidisciplinary approach. It's not just birth control pills. We can talk about, you know, food and lifestyle and what we're putting into our bodies and what our bodies are putting out, as well as the medications that we're taking to control all these symptoms. If we kind of reframe that, it tends to be more palatable. But, you know, root, root cause and cures is a lot more, you know, sexy to talk about, right? Yeah. And it sounds smarter. It sounds smarter. And it sounds like they're actually doing something. They're not. They don't know what they're talking about. Nope. The data isn't there. The research isn't there. Because that's what I always say when we're talking about root causes. We don't know 100% why most of the things happen the way they do, like the actual real, real cause. For most of the things that are happening in our body, we don't. But we do know that if we add this medication or do this treatment or this surgery or whatever, we can make things better for you. But we're still working on finding root causes for like most things that happen in the body. Yep. Like the majority of things that happen in the body, we, yeah, we're not going to get to a, a one root cause situation or a one cure all for everything. So anyone who's presenting or trying to sell that to you is that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to sell that to you. Sell is the operative word. (laughs) Yep. I think that's really important distinction and a really, uh, really important things to bring to light. Cause I also feel like there's this tension between sort of like health and medicine and then quote unquote, like wellness and other, like just this new era of wellness, I guess. And not that that's bad. I think there's many great things coming out of that. And it's like, do they coexist? In what ways do they coexist? In what way are things at odds? And like, I just think that a lot of people have not enough information. And I think your point um, about expectations is also really huge. Okay, so I kind of want to talk about just Speaking of consent, I want to talk about consent and informed consent in a medical setting and then just in general, like improving the patient experience. It's not uncommon to not really know what your doctor is doing during a really in general. I think a lot of people don't always know what's (laughs) going on. Some doctors will talk you through it, say, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it. But a lot of times you're kind of sitting there and just assuming that what they're doing is what they should be doing which also limits your ability to advocate if maybe you don't want something or you don't even know that you don't want something because you're not even sure what they're doing in the first place. And then on top of that, I was reading a post on Instagram just about like empowering trauma-informed care and the option of going stirrupless during a pelvic exam. So I guess, can you talk a little bit about one, what to expect during a pelvic exam and then also how both you and your doctor can make things more comfortable and what what information do you need to really um, make that a better experience as a patient? Yeah, one of the most important things that I tell my patients, especially for my first time patients that I'm seeing for the first time, especially for my patients who know have a trauma history of some sort, and especially for my first GYN exam patients, the phrase that I use all the time is, this is not my exam room, this is your exam room. 
So everything that happens in this exam room is your decision. I can tell you like, yes, at age 21, we recommend pap smears because that's the recommendation. But whether we actually do that is ultimately up to you. You have the right to refuse any of these recommendations based on what you know about yourself and your body. And I'll tell them, you know, I'm very good at walking people through things and being getting as much, you know, consent and discussion about what we're doing as possible. But at the end of the day, if it's something that you are just not comfortable doing, or maybe we're not comfortable now, but maybe we'll be comfortable as our relationship evolves, that is okay. No one is here to force anyone to do an annual exam or to do a pap smear every so often. Like That's still your choice. That is still your choice. And so that's how I generally set the stage. This is your exam room. What happens here is up to you. And then from there, we go on and talk about, you know, what happens um, about their histories, their comforts, their fears, that sort of thing. And I do, I say, tell people everything that we are doing. I ask permission every time we're going to change and do something more invasive. And it does just give them a little more agency of, okay, this is what's happening. This is what we're looking at now. We're almost done. And kind of walks through that whole process. But that's, I, I think setting the stage of that expectation is really important because even if you are walking someone through an exam, people don't want to tell doctors no, and they think they can't, and they think that that's not allowed. So if you tell them ahead of time, it is allowed for you to tell me to stop. If Even if you say, yes, it's okay to try this and we try it and it's not going well, it is okay for you to say we need to stop. Giving them kind of that agency, I think, is really empowering to people. I agree. I, I'm definitely the same way. I'm very big on not only just like setting the expectations in terms of like, hey, this is your time. We don't have to do this today. And for certain patients also, I noticed that if they are really just stressed about it and things like that, I will literally say we really don't have to do this today. Like there is no like I, I there, there's no issue with that. There's no problem with that. We're just here to talk. <laughs> we can talk as many times. And I've had some patients where because of their trauma history or whatnot, we just do one part of the exam every time. Maybe it's just first time we talk. Next time you, you can, you know, undress, right? And that may just be what you can handle this time. Maybe the next time, like, you know, we try to put you in a, you know, position for an exam, you know, maybe we can use, you know, some of the speculums or what, whatever, whatever the case may be, but maybe we can't, you know, obtain the pap smear or whatnot. I like to do it sometimes in that stepwise fashion because some people have been through a lot of things or just don't feel comfortable and, you know, may have anxiety and things like that. I'm someone who suffers from anxiety. So I know I'm like, sometimes you have every intention on like getting it done and being that like tough person that can like plow through it. But you know what? We're not all the same. We're not all the same and we need different things. So I, it, it's a partnership. And it should always be a partnership. And I always say, I'm here for you. Like we're all, all of this is here for you. Like, you know, 
I got nowhere to be <laughs> but here. So like, if you don't want to do this, that's fine. It's like, I don't take it personally. There's nothing you're doing to me or you're not disappointing me. You're not disappointing yourself either. The fact that you show up to a GYN appointment, I think is a big step. I am someone who also has anxiety about GYN appointments personally, even though I am a gynecologist. So for me, I'm like, man, like, a lot of times you're better than me. <laughs> so <laughs> good job. But yeah, even like the stirrup list exams, a lot of, I do them sometimes, but most of my midwives, like in the practice that I'm in, do them and they, a lot of their patients really love it. So I'm actually trying to see how much I can use that depending on what type of exam I'm doing. Sometimes just for comfort in terms of if I have to do a more extensive exam, putting um, you in the position for a start less exam may actually be a little bit more uncomfortable, but that's a discussion I have with patients. But typically, if you're doing things like a pap smear and things like that, there are ways to accomplish it stirrupless, which I think is really cool. I think it's really awesome that we're finding different ways to accomplish the same goals. And if it makes people feel more comfortable, I think that's great. One of the best things you can do for your vulva is to treat it with respect. And that includes being mindful of the products you're using on those delicate tissues. When it comes to lube, ingredients matter. Coconut offers all natural lubricants that feel good and are good for you. Their products are 100% natural, hypoallergenic, 100% cruelty-free, and 100% edible. In fact, Coconut was the first company to produce a coconut oil-based lubricant that is USDA certified organic. They offer an oil-based and water-based lubricant and even a hemp-infused body oil. Don't just take our word for it. As one reviewer, Danielle wrote, I have struggled to find a lube that didn't irritate my lady parts as I have very sensitive skin. I've tried a variety of lubes and this is the only one that I have loved. I used to have irritation slash burning for hours after using some lubes and dreading that really puts a damper on the mood. It's not sticky, it's not messy, and it really does moisturize. I finally found the holy grail of lubes and I'm never going back. Completely worth the money. You heard it here first or second, in which case, what are you waiting for? Head to coconu.com and grab yourself a bottle using code T-A-B-U, taboo, for 15% off. I can already confidently say, you're welcome. So I remember having a really bad experience, just a negative experience with a pap smear to the point that I like was crying afterward and freaked out and just didn't want to go back. So I guess if your doctor isn't creating this type of welcoming, warm environment where you feel as the patient that this is your exam room and, you know, you're having these conversations, obviously what you both mentioned is amazing, but not everyone's having those experiences. So how can the patient take it upon themselves? Because not also everyone can just go to a different doctor, right? Like maybe the recommendation could be find another doctor, which isn't, which is definitely an option. But if you can't, what can you do to take back that control and feel more comfortable? Yeah, I just, I just answered this question for, for someone who's, I don't know, was writing something and, and they said, well, so many people will just say, well, just go see someone else. I'm like, well, yeah, that's all great and good. And yes, but not, it's not easy or even possible for a lot of people. And so I think one, it's it's yes, learning you know even from outside the the office or the exam room that you do have agency and you can say please stop, I'm not comfortable with this. 
and so getting comfortable with being able to do that, even if that stage hasn't been set for you, it, it's important to just know that you can and should do that. Not that that's easy. It's not. Number two, I think you always have the option of you know seeing someone else within the same clinic because that other person that might be a better fit for you might not be that far away. That person may be in the next exam room over and that's okay. So that could be a, a simpler solution. Besides that, I always tell people, you know, talk, really talk to friends and family, get their personal experiences, because if there's someone that you connect with closely and trust and they have a provider that, that, that they trust, that's going to be another personal connection that's going to help you feel more comfortable. And then finally, just, you know, it, it, obviously not everyone is on social media, but just like what we were talking about earlier, going to social media and saying, are there any doctors in my area who are on social media who I can actually get to know ahead of time? So I know how they feel. I know what their personalities are like. They've talked about this. So I know what they're going to say there. And again, it's just getting that, trying to build a little bit of comfort and trust before getting into the exam room. And it's how to find that. And there's a couple of different ways to do it. But again, none of it is easy. It's it's all difficult. Yeah, I agree. And another big thing too, that I always tell people, which is like, you know, trying to find that agency can be super hard, especially if you're, you know, if you've grown up presenting female, being a woman, we're told like, we're not supposed to be like, you know, challenging anything. We're, you know, we're not supposed to be confrontational. And that's hard because like, it's not necessarily being confrontational to speak up for yourself. So like one thing that I recommend if you can is see if you can like, you know, in that little brief time before you do the, the exam is supposed to be done, having as part of your conversation, and I've had patients um, before I even said anything, it's like, I had a bad experience with a provider and just like laid it out. And I was actually very impressed. I was like, good for you. <laughs> like, you know, way to go in there and like really just say like, listen, I've had a bad experience in this space. And these are the things that for me today will be off limits. And then they've just like laid it out. And I'm like, cool. Like, you know, for me, I didn't, again, didn't take it personally because Literally, it was like after it's like, hi, I'm Dr. Ronda, like, nice to meet you. And they're like, hi, okay, here are the ground rules. And I'm like, okay, well, this is how we're going to play it. But sometimes you may need to do that, you know, like if you're, if you're scared, if you're concerned, verbalize it. Because I think sometimes we don't take that opportunity to be like, hey, you know, maybe I've had a bad experience in this space, or I'm really scared about doing this, or I haven't been to an OBGYN in a while. That's another thing too, that I think people are afraid of, that you're going to see something or you're going to judge them. That's something else that I always say, I'm like, oh, welcome back. And no matter how long it's been, I don't care. You've never been to see me, cool, like, or anyone, that's fine. But like also saying, hey, I'm scared. I haven't been in a while. I don't think that's a bad thing to say. It's just putting out those ground rules first so that, you know, hopefully it will lead to a better experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it is our job to kind of try to elicit, you know, histories of, of trauma and, and certain things. And so we should be doing that, but we, like we know not everyone does. And it is okay to say, to be just generic about it too, because obviously most people are not going to want to talk about it. But if you just say, hey, I, I have a traumatic history and this is uncomfortable for me, literally that sentence, that's enough for me to be like, okay, 
Let's talk about what you're comfortable with and what we can do to make that better. So we don't even have to go into painful details or anything like that. But if you just kind of well, one little blurb, that it, that is enough for us to to trigger and say, okay, we're going to shift gears and really take our time to to do each part or talk about each part individually and what you're comfortable with. Totally. And I think it's such a great point about how we carry our identities into the exam room. So like as a woman, maybe feeling uncomfortable to speak up and all of the, like anyone with a marginalized identity is going to have a different experience in certain contexts, just the same way they do navigating life, just the same as doctors are carrying their own humanity and their own identities and their own experiences. And I think this segues into a question that I have just about race and how that plays a role in healthcare environments. So we know that Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women, and this is demonstrated across education level and wealth, um, as evidenced by Serena Williams, who almost died giving birth to her daughter. So obviously, we need culturally responsive, patient-centered care, trauma-informed care, everything we just talked about. But while the healthcare systems are working on that, what can Black women and people, anyone with a uterus with a marginalized identity, what can they do to take ownership of their health? What are the questions to ask? And, you know, how can they know, like, this isn't also what's that line between like, this doesn't feel right, or I think something's wrong and trusting your doctor that they know um, maybe what's best, I guess, or how do you come to that partnership? Well, something that I think is interesting, especially since this data about the disparities in care for Black women have been more publicized, is that I have a lot of Black patients that will come in and some of them at the beginning of their pregnancy in tears, like already stressed. And they're like, and I think because I'm also a Black provider, they feel more comfortable telling me about their fears. And they're like, I'm afraid I'm going to die. And it's not necessarily that you're like, that you, Dr. Urbana, is going to be the one who like causes it or whatever, but like you can't be there all the time and the system is going to fail me. And what I recommend is actually having a candid discussion with your provider about the concern that you have and see how they respond. Because I've had colleagues of mine, not currently here or anything, that have like definitely challenged the fact that they don't feel like it's a real issue. And so if you go to a medical provider who doesn't recognize it as a real issue and you're from a marginalized community, I mean, I do think, you know, trying to find a different provider may be helpful or at least someone in their practice, something like that, because not everybody's the same, right? But like just putting it out there and seeing how they respond to that or like what what are they doing to help this situation in their hospital, in their community, in their practice for people of marginalized backgrounds is like a good place to start. But it's a very complex situation and issue just because it's like, you know, systemic issues, it's implicit bias. These are things that are not going to like change tomorrow, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, 
I'm really glad you said that because I I gave a talk to a group of college students not too long ago, and and it, it was on you know a different topic, but we opened it up to questions afterwards, and that was one of the questions. One of the leaders of the group was a, a black woman, and she asked me, you know, what can I, you know, she said the exact same thing. All of this thing, all these things in the news, you know, I'm just scared to ever get pregnant. How can I find a, a doctor or a provider that I can feel comfortable with and advocate for myself? And I, you know, you know, as a minority but non-black woman, it's it's hard to it's hard to discuss what they should do to advocate for themselves because that's not me. But what we talked about was kind of just that was asking your provider. What's how do you feel about this? What is your opinion on taking care of, you know, how do you take care of black women and acknowledge the disparities that we see in black maternal health? How do you acknowledge that? How do you feel about that? And what do you think, you know, we can how can we address that? And I think just trying to elicit their opinions, even without addressing, you know, yourself, just eliciting their basic reactions and opinions in that way is going to tell you a lot of things. And so, cause if someone like Heather was saying, if someone's like, what, what disparity <laughs> or, or if they get super defensive, you already know where they're going. So yeah, I think if we can just elicit those basic opinions, you're really going to know who you're talking to and what they're aware of. And if they're not aware of anything, then that's a problem too, because they have no idea what implicit bias is. Exactly. And it's so important that we recognize that because I think one of the biggest things that have come out of this like last year of this kind of racial reckoning, as I like to call it in our society, is that like, you know, the I don't see color, there is no bias, I'm not racist like argument doesn't really hold up. And that's actually the scariest place. Sometimes you can be because you're not even, oops, sorry. You're not even, you don't even recognize like how this is all happening or what's going on with everything. You know what I mean? You don't even know that you're biased and that's like scary. Thank you both for those responses. I think that's a huge topic. And I think just as you're saying, like, obviously society is inching along, hopefully, um, toward progress. But I think, yeah, there's so much that you can get just out of seeing how someone responds. And I think that's a really great point. It's just starting with a conversation and getting a sense of where they're at. And if they're totally, you know, if they're totally resistant to the conversation, then maybe that's not the right provider for you. Um, so if I can just squeeze in this, this last question for people who don't have insurance, So a lot of people are obviously reliant upon their insurance and that dictates what their medical options even are in many cases. So for people who maybe don't have insurance or don't have the the best coverage, what are the absolutely necessary, like, what do you think they need to do? Maybe even if it's paying out of pocket to make sure that they're taking, you know, taking care of themselves and where can they go maybe? Well, as someone who works for the public hospital system in New York, most of my patients are uninsured or underinsured. So you can always come and see us. 
<laughs> and we will do everything for you, even if you don't have insurance. So you can always look at for your, your like municipal healthcare system, like wherever you are, like that's county or city or whatever. There's also Planned Parenthood also that provides care on a sliding scale. So if you got no money, no job and whatever, they got you. If you got a little bit of money, they got you too. Like they will take care of you. And um, in terms of kind of like things you um, should get done, I, if you're of the age of PAP, so 21 and over, I do think it's a good idea to get one. If you make it there, if you don't make it there at 21, that's okay. Whenever you make it in, we will welcome you with open arms. If you're sexually active, sexually transmitted infection testing is always good. Just to know where you're at, it's always nice to know your status and whatever that status may be, we can help you. (laughs) And so I feel like a lot of people are like, I don't want to know because if I find out then like my life is over and it's like, you didn't know before the actual test was done and you were living your life. And so the the plan is for you to continue to live your life even after you know what those results are, because you had it before we even knew, like before we tested you, um, you may or may not have it after and that's fine. We can take care of you either way and you can live a great life regardless of whatever the test results show. And I'll give it to Stacey because she probably has some other things she wants to add to. <laughs> no, I think those are definitely the basics. I think, you know, a pap smear starting around the age of 21 or whenever you are able to kind of get in to see us. Um, and if those are normal, every three years is very reasonable for those. As we get older and we get, you know, more histories of normal and we start adding in things like human papillomavirus testing, even spacing those out to every five years is very, very reasonable. So that is no longer a yearly annual thing if you are normal and healthy. So rest assured, you do not need to pay for a pap smear every single year if you are normal. And yes, sexually transmitted infection testing, kind of just as um, your risk evolves and what is going on there. And then when you hit 40 mammograms, so mammograms would be the other thing because we have very few things in healthcare that have been shown to prevent mortality and prevent morbidity. Mammograms is one of them. Pap smears is one of them. Colonoscopies is one of them. Those are like pretty the three basic things that we know can decrease morbidity and mortality from those things. So yeah, I would say those. By normal, you mean like not having an abnormal result from your, yeah. Colon. Correct. Correct. If you have an abnormal result, then we're going to talk about when we're going to follow that up. But normals, you do not need normals every single year. Exactly. It's like, I love you, but I don't need to see you all the time if you're fine. You can follow me on TikTok. (laughs) Exactly. We can chat outside of the office. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for answering all my questions and joining me, us, for this conversation. Where can people find you? I am at Dr. Stacy T on all social media platforms, which are right now Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. <laughs> and I'm at Dr. Heather Irabunda MD on TikTok and IG. And I'm Irabunda MD on Twitter that I don't really use that often, but I mean, maybe I'll use it more. I don't know. <laughs> you know, Twitter is mean. It, it is. No I'm one not needs. feeling it. Twitter is mean. I, yeah. I, I, I dabble, but it's not my, my, my platform of choice. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. And hey, 
What are you going to ask for yourself this week? Head to our Instagram at askingformyself, that's with the number four, and or talk taboo to share what you've learned and what questions you have. Catch you next time.